This episode of the unofficial Shopify podcast is brought to you by Zipify and their flagship app, Zipify Pages. Zipify Pages is an e-commerce sales funnel and landing page builder that seamlessly integrates into your Shopify store. Just start with one of a growing list of templates, customize, and go. These templates are created by my friend and eight-figure Shopify store owner, Ezra Firestone. Each template is built with proven conversion elements, but also features a simple drag-and-drop editor, so you could truly make each of these pages your own. You could customize, tweak, test to create some awesome landing pages and sales funnels. Check out all the details and sign up for the brand new application at Zipify.com. That's Zipify, Z-I-P-I-F-Y.com. The unofficial Shopify podcast receives support from our friends at Klaviyo. If you've listened to this show, it's no secret that I love Klaviyo. It brings together all of your Shopify e-commerce data in one place and makes it super easy for you to create highly relevant, automated, and personalized email and Facebook advertising campaigns. We've seen Klaviyo's automation workflows typically drive 10 to 20% additional revenue every month for our clients. That's why thousands of e-commerce companies use Klaviyo to increase their sales. You can sign up for free today at Klaviyo.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. Welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. Here I am recording from EtherCycle headquarters outside Chicago. I'm your host, Kurt Elster. And today on the unofficial Shopify podcast, I have some news. Um, a week ago, my wife gave birth to my beautiful baby daughter, Kennedy Julie Elster, at three pounds, 10 ounces. She's just a tiny little thing, but both, both mother and daughter um, are totally healthy and fine. And I am thrilled to death. I'm in unusually good moods lately, so if you want to ask me for a favor, now's the time to email me, right? Um, <laughs> but make sure you congratulate me first. Anyway, other than that, uh, we are, of course, talking about what we're always talking about, how to make more money. And joining me today is a really inspirational story. It's Peter Keller from Fringesport.com. And Peter founded Fringesport out of his garage in 2010, grew it to seven figures in revenue in 18 months. Oh, I wish, man, I wish I'd done that with my business. It took us like six years to figure out what we were doing. This guy did it in 18 months. So he's the CEO of Fringesport, which is focused on bringing great products with great prices and world-class customer service to WODers and weightlifters. Peter, what is a WODer? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Kurt, and congratulations. Thank you. I've got two little kiddos of my own, and you know they're really all the joy in life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, it's a, the, as soon as you have your own, then suddenly it's like you're excited about everything. It's like, oh my God, she pooped. Wow. <laughs> there you go, man. Well, back to your question. It's actually wader. So water. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like water or, you know, wad. So if you do CrossFit, every day you have what's called the workout of the day or W uh, for workout, O okay. for of, we forget about the, and then day for D. So that's your wad. So you're a wader if you do the workout of the day. So we've already revealed that I am not a, a CrossFitter <laughs> and the extent of my working out is uh, sporadic, sporadic training with a Jillian Michaels DVD and uh, riding my bike when weather permits. 
No worries. I hear you. Well, you know, we're lucky to be down here in Austin, Texas, where weather almost always permits. So, oh, it's lovely. And, and all of it sure is. And all of us at Fringe are really big CrossFitters and weightlifters, and, and we're really into that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, if it helps for listeners, uh, I can assure you Peter is is jacked and good-looking. <laughs> well, hey, I got a wife, so calm down. But, uh, you know, we'll talk about it after we stop recording. <laughs> Thank you for playing along with that, that mess. Um, okay, so what the heck is Fringe Sport? So <clears throat> Fringe Sport is an e-commerce or multi-channel or v-commerce or whatever the buzzword is company where we design and manufacture barbells, squat racks, kettlebells, all that sort of stuff, and deliver it direct to consumer. So we're dealing with a lot of garage gymmers. We're dealing with a lot of what I call box owners, micro gym owners, CrossFit affiliates, that sort of thing. So basically, if you ask me what I do at a party, I say I sell barbells. Very good. And it sounds like, you know, listening to that, um, it sounds like you have a really clear picture of who your customers are. Like it, you already defined both the customer and segments within it. How important has that been? Uh, man, that's <laughs> of utmost importance. I mean, <clears throat> they're riches and niches as the saying goes. And for us, our biggest success came when we really narrowed down, extremely narrow, where our target and key customer demographics were. And, you know, we go down to, you know, age range, income range, you know, what percentage male, female, that sort of thing. But uh, basically, it's garage gymmers and uh, micro gym slash box owners. I love this idea of figuring out, well, I love niches, you know, and for me, our started with, hey, let's just work on Shopify stores, right? And there's only 325,000 Shopify stores, and many are owned by, you know, some are owned by multiple people. And like, you know, generalists, other people would say, you're crazy, for, for niching down, what would you say to them? Why are you not out there trying to compete with, you know, sports authority, whether a bad example or like Dick sporting goods? Uh, you know, anybody that would say you're crazy, I would say you're probably not a business person or you probably don't <laughs> own your own business. I know, you know it's so hard to, when people you know, are like, what niching down, that's silly. It's so hard to be dismissive after you've experienced the incredible power of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I would say is, I mean, there's a real, you know, non-business person or maybe even a, a venture capital kind of type of backed business person idea that it's like, okay, let's take a addressable market of a billion people or 300 million or whatever the number is and let's try to capture a small sliver of that and then we'll be great. And then there's the opposite side of that, which is more like what you and I are talking about in terms of looking at the niches. And we're saying, hey, let's not try to look at this huge addressable market and then try to, you know, magically or through magical thinking, you know, get some sort of slice of that. Let's rather define down really well who our target demo is. And then let's try to drive incredible and amazing value for these people that are more or less homogeneous in, in some way. And maybe I'm using too many buzzwords and stuff in there. But the idea is basically know who your customer is and then knock their socks off. So how did – I love that idea. How did you figure out who your customer is? <laughs> like how do you so, – you know, it's, it's one thing – you know, a lot of people will say – they'll, you know, I'll say, oh, who's your customer? And they'll describe it or they'll – you know, and you could tell when they don't really know their customer because it's way too broad a description. It's like where they're like, it's women, 18 to 50. I'm like, all right, you described like – 40% of the population there, buddy. Um, you know, 
it's one thing to think you know who they are. Like, how did you figure it out? So this is kind of a cheating answer, but at least at the very start, I was our customer. I was a CrossFitter and still am a CrossFitter. I was really into this stuff. I geeked out over the gear and I thought, you know what, if I just build stuff that I think is really awesome, it's probably going to appeal to a lot of other people. And I also had the additional benefit of the fact that I'd worked in e-commerce for 10 years. Uh, I had an MBA, and so I had you know a business background, plus I'd been through e-commerce, so I was just really steeped in all these ways of how to go to market using e-commerce. But I will say that I am no longer our target customer, although I still build stuff that I think is awesome. As we grew larger, we just paid a lot of attention to basically Google Analytics and any other analytics that we could find that would help us define who our target customer is. So for example, a major change in my mindset, uh, when you go to a CrossFit gym or a CrossFit competition, there are a lot of women at those comps. And so I actually thought that our target demo at the start was going to be more or less 50-50 male-female. And as we found out now, we're more closer, excuse me, we're closer to 70, 80% male and obviously the remainder female. But so I would, uh, I would start out with an idea and then see uh, an idea of who your target customer is. And then I would use any means that you have, you know, Google Analytics of who's coming to your site, um, just calling your customers. So I called our first 100 customers to Fringe Sport and thanked them for their order and then just tried to engage them in conversation about why they ordered from us and, you know, what they'd want to order from us in the future. And so anything you can do to reach out to the customers will help you get a better picture in your mind of who your customer is. I love this idea of talking to your customers, but it sounds like you know the, the key here, and this is actually a really, con- you say, well, I cheated. This actually is a, a consistent <laughs> trend that in any like really successful um, business we've talked to on this show and, and offline is that the target customer is often the entrepreneur in the beginning, where you say, you know, you I, you say, listen, I could do this better, or you know, there's you identify something based on your own need, your own pain. You want to scratch your own itch. And it really it, it helps a lot because you just build it for yourself. And then not everyone grows from there where they don't like they're still building it for themselves, but now they're in it too deep, you can't see the forest through the trees, and it gets hard. Talking to your customers has always been seems to be that that next step for growth. And you did something incredibly clever, incredibly obvious that n- most people are loath to do, and that's pick up the phone, right? Number one was, you know, you looked in the mirror and said, okay, I'm going to sell to myself. And then number two was, all right, let's talk to the people who are buying. You picked up the phone and talked to the first 100 customers. And I love that idea. I mean, some of the most successful business owners I've met spend a lot more time on the phone than they do in their inbox, right? I totally agree. And it's something that I continue through to today. I love to talk with my customers on the phone. I love to email them. I love to hang out with them. Like some of my favorite like crazy stories, I literally flew to Tokyo to hang out. And by the way, I was in Beijing, so it's not like I was in Austin at the time. But I literally <laughs> flew to Tokyo because one of my customers said, please come to Tokyo and I'll buy you sushi at a fish market in Tokyo. And I was like, all right, next time I'm in Asia, done. It's a date. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Um, okay. So the, you know, initially the idea for starting out sounds simple. And you started in 2010, and it was certainly a different, I mean, a lot has changed in seven years. Um, 
but you rapidly grew this business to seven figures in revenue in 18 months. How? How did you do that? <laughs> There's so many people who are like, okay, that sounds good. I want to do that too. So first, let's keep in mind that it's an e-commerce seven figures. So you had talked earlier about taking, you know, six years to kind of figure out your path. So it's it's way different if you're in a, you know, consulting field or something like that. But the way that we did it through e-commerce was uh, a lot of ad spend, which, you know, I think we'll talk about later in this podcast. So a lot of ad spend and a lot of hustling and then a lot of broadening the product line. So when we first started in 2010, we had only one product and I'm a big fan of lean startup. And so rather than kind of thinking and trying to, to launch with something perfect, my mindset at the time was what is the cheapest, worst product that I could bring to market quickly and see if people will actually buy it from me online. And so for me at that time, it was a pair of gymnastic rings with straps. And so I sourced those from China using some of my connections over there. Had a two, an order, I think my first order was 200 pieces, 200 pairs of those rings sitting on the floor of my garage. And once they're on the floor of my garage, I just had to hustle and sell them. And so we were selling them on eBay. Amazon wasn't as big as a third-party marketplace back then. We were selling them on our own Shopify site. We also were hitting up uh, every local CrossFit gym in Austin saying, hey, we're selling gymnastic rings. We were hitting up every blogger and every forum that we could uh, trying to you know, move rings. And then once we started to move some of those gymnastic rings and we were like, hey, this is actually working a little bit. Then we said, what is the cheapest, fastest way that we can broaden our product line? And so at that time, and I'm not a huge fan of drop shipping, but at that time we did find some drop shippers where we could add some kettlebells and some weight plates onto the site. And it was more of an experiment than anything else. So we added them onto the site, started doing some more in Google AdWords. And every time something worked, we would just do more and more of it. And every time something didn't work, we would just kind of cull it off. And so I don't know if that gives you like a, a clear roadmap for how we got to seven figures, but it was a lot of hustling and a lot of broadening the product line and then just a lot of marketing. So it sounds like the initial effort was, le- you know, it certainly wasn't about the product where you said like, a, you know, the cheapest, crappiest thing. What was the initial goal? Was it to to validate the the idea to try and figure out your product market fit? What was the... What were you looking for where you said, okay, I should spend more time? And when you say hustle, I mean, really, it's like spending a lot of your time. Spend more time, spend more money on on this business. So the initial idea that we were trying to prove out was, would people buy fitness equipment for functional fitness from us online? That's what we were trying to prove out. Because I thought the answer was yes, but at the time I was working in e-commerce, I was making a real solid six figures. I had a very clear upward mo- mobility path where I was. And so it was a pretty big leap to jump off to my own thing, although one that I had a lot of motivation to make kind of intrinsically. So we were just trying to see, would we be able to sell to this target demo through our own website? Phenomenal. So from there, um, then you grew the business by you know, expanding the product line, investing more in, in product. At any point, did you, when did you uh, get into, say, product development? And do you make your own products? We do, yeah. At this point with Fringe Sport, we sell 90, 95% of the product that we've got. 
is our product that's private label and either contract manufactured to our designs or an OEM uh, manufacturing. So something that we find somewhere, modify and, and sell. And what do you think the advantages to doing that versus reselling someone else's products are? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I, it's a a softball question. I know the answer to that one. And that was the reaction I was hoping for. (laughs) Yeah. So in 2017, so even in 2010, back when we started, it was tough to resell someone else's product. Uh, in 2017, I think that if you think you want to resell products, you've got to have some advantage that I'm not able to access or that I'm not aware of to really do that in any sort of like sustainable way to support your even yourself or a larger business. I mean, Amazon's just going to murder you if if all you're doing is reselling in most cases. But I think that there are some people who do it through, uh, you know, either they have special, <clears throat> excuse me, access to products that that I or somebody else wouldn't be able to get, or maybe they have access to a demographic that I'm not able to have access to. So, for example, if someone has an extremely large following, whether it be social media or, you know, something else that they can tap into that I'm not able to tap into, that might be a viable option. But beyond that, there's, and, and that's only kind of an edge case. I would say for 99% of people out there who are thinking that they want to go into a physical product-based e-commerce business, that they need to be designing their own products at this point. Absolutely agreed. All right. So talk, you know, the other thing you did to grow the business was uh, dumping money on ad spend. Talk to me about, um, well, you know, what is your, what's your, uh, your PPC ad spend look like now? <laughs> I was hoping that you would ask that. So at our height, Fringe got up to about $25,000 a month on ad spend, and that was AdWords, affiliate marketing, and Facebook ads. Uh, I haven't seen my financials yet, honestly, for last month, but we're down to around $1,000 a month in paid marketing spend. So we we just took a, a buzzsaw to that budget, and <laughs> you so you really you've, you've packed it you've jumped ship on on uh, paid advertising. I have, yeah, and all of my friends think that I'm crazy, or at least most of them do, because I hang out with a lot of internet marketers, a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs, and when they hear what I've done, so I have a few really close friends that understand what I'm doing. But other than the friends who are really close, everyone tells me, you're crazy. Whatever you're doing that's working right now, it's not going to work in another month or another three months or something like that. You're absolutely crazy. But conversely, I mean, even if you if you were crazy, it's not like you couldn't just start your the campaigns that worked again. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I don't see a lot of risk to what you're doing. But tell me, what, you know what, were the ads now, you were spending $25,000 a month, It's in, clearly you're sophisticated. I would think that you uh, were seeing, were you not seeing an ROI in those ads? We were seeing an ROI in the ads. So why so- stop them? I think you're crazy. <laughs> there you go. I love it. I love it. So we took a look at what we're growing Fringe Sport to be and, and where we want to be putting our investment and what we want to be doing for our customers and employees. So we have, in my opinion, three main demographics that are important to us as a business. Demographic number one is our customers. They come first always. 
So everything that we do has got to be around making the experience better for them. Demographic number two is our employees. We need to be building an awesome company for our employees. And then demographic number three is going to be, you know, me and my partner, the owners of the company. We need to make sure that we're growing the company in a, you know, financially sustainable and advantageous way for us. And when we took a good hard look at ad spend through Google, Facebook, affiliate marketing, stuff like that, we just disliked how transactional that ad spend is. You know, in other words, you you give a dollar to Google today and tomorrow it's gone and Google doesn't love you in the morning. Uh, same thing with Facebook and, and to a little bit of a lesser extent, same thing with affiliates. So one of our hypotheses was, is there a way that we can spend any money that we are spending on marketing in a more sustainable way that will provide long-term benefits to the company and help us to build a more solid foundation for Fringe that will benefit our customers, employees, and us as owners. And so what that means is that we started drawing back heavily on our paid spend and investing our time, energy, and money into things like SEO, things like content marketing, things like email marketing, and then seeing if we could grow a sustainable business that way. And I will tell you that it was super scary, uh, particularly when I cut our Google AdWords spend, because that had been, you know, I talked back about the beginning of the company. Back when Fringe was on the come up, in the early days, we were basically taking any profitability we could find and like throwing it into more ad spend because the ads were ROIing and the more money that we could spend on ads, the bigger we could grow, the more customers we could acquire. And we do have a repeat customer business. So we were like, okay, this is amazing. So when we first cut with that hatchet or the buzzsaw, our Google marketing budget, we saw a drop of revenue by about 40%. And it, it was pretty, uh, pretty scary and pretty dramatic and, and pretty fast. You know, it came within a few weeks uh, or, you know, some was immediate, but then there was some tail to the AdWords spend. But through becoming better at SEO, better at content marketing, and, and better at email marketing and that sort of thing, we were actually able to grow to where now our revenue level is higher than it was back when we had this huge spend and our marketing spend is way lower. And I would strongly argue that the muscles that we had to build, metaphorically, the marketing muscles that we had to build are muscles that are more, they, they're less, they deteriorate more slowly than the Facebook or AdWords muscles. So basically, if you become really good at Facebook ads or Google AdWords or something like that, you always have to stay on top of your game and there are all these little changes. You have to stay on top of all that stuff. But if you become really good at generating great content, um, I mean, I'm reading books from uh, Ogilvy on advertising, for example. I think that book was written in 1985. So that book was written 30 years ago and when I read it, it's amazing today. So if I become amazing at generating content, that is not going to atrophy in a month or a year or even 10 years. And if we become amazing at touching our customers' heart, excuse me, hearts with our content and, and tweaking their emotions in a very beneficial way, that's going to be sticky and that's going to stick around for years and years in terms of their affinity for our brand and our skill at delivering something that our customers love. It sounds like, you know, this is about long-term long-term sustainability 
and doing what's best for your customers. You're really putting your customers first. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, ultimately the, that ad spend is not going to be nearly as beneficial for the customers as you know, creating great content is. I agree. That right? it, yeah. I mean, that, that's a lot of it. It's basically, if I spend a dollar on Google AdWords, again, like I mentioned, that dollar is gone tomorrow. But if I spend this metaphorical dollar on creating great content, that's going to be more or less evergreen. That not only benefits me, but great content benefits our customers. Um, you know, if we, so we do a lot of email marketing and I have customers who I just run into in the street or whatever, or I'm at a, let's say I'm at the CrossFit games or CrossFit regionals and customers will t talk to me about an email that I wrote six months ago and they'll say, oh, this was really awesome or I love this or this is crazy or something like that. And it was an email that we sent out six months ago. I've never had a customer ever say, oh, you know, that AdWords ad that I saw was really awesome. That's a great, and, yeah, that is yeah. a great point. I mean, it really, um, it really, really engages people better. When you write email, are you sending like plain text emails as you as Peter Keller, CEO of Fringe Sport? Haha, <laughs> that's a great question. So we actually send at least five emails a week to our email list. And one of those emails, which is the, the Wednesday email that we send out, sorry, so at, so four of those emails come from team at fringesport.com. And they're mostly content-based, but uh, one of those emails a week comes from peter at fringesport.com, which is, by the way, my real you know business uh, email address. So if anybody listening sends me an email at peter at fringesport.com, I'll respond to you. <laughs> but so the one I send out a week, excuse me, the one email I send out per week from peter at fringesport.com is 100% written by me, and I do my darndest to respond to every single person who responds back to me. And we have an email list that's, uh, let's say, around 30,000 uh, subscribers right now, and every time I send out an email, I get dozens and dozens of replies to my personal inbox. And like I said, I, I do everything I can to respond to every single one. And every now and then somebody falls through the cracks, but I do a pretty good job at that. So what has, um, you know, having a high, you know, people tend to be really, I, I'd love email, number one. Um, and I always tell people, I'm like, listen, you got to be either, you know, through, through automation, through broadcast emails, you know, through a combination of both. You need to be reaching out to people. You need to be reminding them. You need to be building a relationship as a human. Sell like a human, as a, a previous guest said. So with your, you know, what have been the effects of sending out, you know, high frequency emails, you know, it's almost daily if you're doing five a week and, um, you know, with one of them being from you personally and responding to them, what, what has been the benefit, the effects of that? What have you seen? So in 2015, we sent out multiple emails a week. I don't think we were up to five emails a week, but it was probably like three emails a week that were very promotional focused. And so that's 2015, about three emails a week, let's say. And, uh, I don't want to discuss the exact numbers here, but uh, we did a little bit of, you know, good, decent email revenue in 2015. In 2016, where I became a true blue believer in content, and we started sending out five emails a week, four of which were heavy, heavy content, um, our email revenue 10x'd. It, it literally went up 10 wow. times. And our email, uh, we did do a few things to help build the list, but our email list nearly doubled. Huh. In, in that time. And I'm on a war path right now to build our email list to 100K subscribers, which uh, is a big jump. 
you know, it'd be more than tripling where we are now, but I think we can do it in a year. And I think that it's going to be amazing for our business, but more important than being amazing for the business, I actually think that it's going to be the best and most enjoyable email newsletter in fitness. And one of the things, you know, that makes people, it's tough for people, um, store owners, you know, with emails, is they're hard to write. Once you got into a habit of doing this regularly, did you find it got easier? Yeah, absolutely. And Was it hard at the, first? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. definitely hard at first. And, you know, the, so I call my Wednesday emails the, the Peter emails or the PK emails because I'm Peter Keller. And I've been experimenting with what I write. And so... Just to let people know, two of my most, two of the emails that have most resonated with people, one is an email that I wrote about buying a unicycle off of Craigslist, and I included a GIF in the body of the email. So our emails are HTML, but I'm mostly writing in plain text. Right, okay. Uh, within the HTML. So it, so it is actually HTML, but it, other than like a header, most but it's mostly like plain, plain text. text. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when I say plain text, I just mean something that's not like super over designed. That's all images. Yeah. So <clears throat> so I sent I sent out this one about me buying a unicycle on Craigslist, and I included a GIF in the email of me falling off the unicycle because I don't know if you ever tried, but it's hard to learn how to ride a unicycle. I did. I I did briefly work in a bike shop many years ago, and yeah, we, like we tried riding a unicycle. It was disastrous. There you go. So that was one of my emails that resonated really strongly. Another email that resonated really strongly is, unfortunately, I, I put a dog down last year. I'm sorry. It's I, hard. They're like family it, members. It, it's tough. They, they are. And honestly, I was very anguished, like in my heart. Like I felt really bad. And I opened up and shared that with our email list. And, and I felt kind of weird about it because I, I wasn't meaning to do it as like a mercenary thing, like to mine my anguish for you know, fun and profit or whatever. But uh, I, I feel a connection really with our email list. And I was feeling, you know, bad and I wanted to share. And so I shared and I just got this outpouring in my inbox of people wishing me well. And they sent me pictures of their dogs, you know, having a good time and stuff like that. Like, hey, here's my dog looking goofy. You know, maybe it'll cheer you up. And like just seeing that from our customers, it just made me feel awesome. Doesn't and it? it? And it also let me know that I, I'm touching them on an emotional level that they like. They care about me, and they care about us. I think, yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, the more you know, I found, yeah, in my emails too, I will just be. You know, I always encourage people. I'm like, be open, be personal. So I will always include stuff, and I'll include like sometimes I'll include funny stories, embarrassing stories. I definitely will include uh, pictures, um, but like. Uh, when my wife was pregnant, I announced it like we told friends and family, and then I announced it to my email list before I ever <laughs> announced it on Facebook because it really like I feel closer to you know the random people on or feel closer to my email list than the random people on Facebook, and that's an important mindset to get into where you're thinking, you know, your email list is not your list. You're thinking about it as like you know these are my these are my my people, my tribe, my ideal clients, customers. Um, and it, it's really beneficial to build that relationship where like now fringe sport is more than fringe sport. Fringe sport has a face. It's Peter Keller. He's, you know, the, this great guy, um, who emails me every week. And then when you, you, you know, and when, when they respond to you and you respond back, wow, people are always like, Oh, I can't believe you responded back the first time. But yeah, anyone who's, who writes me a thoughtful, 
you know, uh, sends me a thoughtful question, thoughtful email, of course I'm going to send a thoughtful response back. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that's interesting, since I've started doing this, I've started to become, this is just a weird thing, more and more uncomfortable with calling our customers customers. Like I, I've been experimenting a lot with calling them clients or I don't really know what to call them, but like I feel this like emotional connection with the people that we serve. And, you know, I mean, from a business standpoint, absolutely 100% they're our customers. But from what we're trying to build with them, I mean, I feel like they're part of the family almost. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a little weird, but. No, <laughs> Paul Jarvis uh, talks about this. He's like, he's really into rats. This guy has like a dozen rats. So he he's always looking for, he doesn't want to be involved with anyone who doesn't like rats. So he's got this huge email list and it opens like the welcome email talks about him and it shows like a picture of his rat tattoo. And anyone who replies back and is like, ew, rats, he unsubscribes them. So he calls the rest of his, the remaining list is then his rat people. And I've, that's always stuck with me is you got to find your rat people. <laughs> you got to find your rat people. I love that. Yeah. So, okay, you've got two – we're coming to the end of our time together, but you've brought up so many great ideas. Um, and I, the, so the three pillars that you're replacing your, uh, your ad spend with are SEO email content. And you've really – you've opened up the Komodo on, the, on your email efforts. I agree with all of it. It all makes sense to me. Um, what's uh, – talk to me about the, the content marketing and SEO because it's – to me, like those people always say, like when people ask me about SEO, I said, don't, you can't trick Google. You're not going to outsmart Google. Just make great content, make stuff that people want to read. And that's the best SEO strategy. Talk to me about what you're doing. So, so here's what I would say. You can trick Google, but Google will eventually figure it out and Google will get mad. So you don't want to do that. Rather than trick Google, you want to feed Google. And here is what Here's how I think of SEO. I think that Google's I'm feeling lucky button is Google's like tell. That's Google telling you exactly what it wants. Like when I say you, I mean you as the internet marketer. What Google wants is for someone to be able to put a search term in that box and then instead of hitting search or whatever Google search button is, hit I'm feeling lucky and then for what is returned with I'm feeling lucky to be the most relevant response in the world for that search term. So when I think about SEO and when I think about our website, I don't think about let's trick Google or let's stay up on what is the, uh, you know, the newest in SEO or whatever. I just think for these specific hundred keywords or thousand keywords or however many keywords we track, what is the, how can we make our page the most relevant response possible so that when someone puts that in the box and then hits, I'm feeling lucky, they land on our page and they don't bounce or they bounce as little as possible. And that is the most relevant page in the world for them. So is that too like 10,000 foot view? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. But all right. So, um, I certainly do. You know, especially like with at least with writing title tags for a homepage, I certainly do something similar in that, you know, I'll search the search for the thing and then I look at what the like I want to know that I'm getting the right I'm using the right words to describe it. So I'll look at like the related searches to try and come up with like a good long tail keyword phrase. Um or I'll look at like the autocomplete suggestions because it's gonna autocomplete to like the thing people are searching for, right? So it's sort of like that's kind of where I start with 
with SEO, at least for like title tags or art, you know, titles of articles, that kind of thing. Is that kind of like, would, does that make sense in your, your view of SEO? It absolutely does make sense, except that I don't spend that much time worrying about that stuff. I more spend time worrying about like, let's think about the psychology of the person who the like prototypical person who's putting that search term into the Google box. What are they looking for? And how can I make an awesome page for that search? Which by the way, you had talked about content marketing and we had talked about content marketing before. I have a very similar like 10,000 foot idea behind content marketing. Like let's get into the brain as best we can of the person who's putting that term into the search box and then deliver the most awesome, amazing, relevant page slash piece of content for that person. And yeah, the title tags have got to all line up and you got to get kind of the little like blocking and tackling of SEO right. But if you deliver a freaking banging, amazing page, then you're just going to be, you know, near the top. How do you get in their heads? How do you know when you know, have you, are, do you have a good, a good intuition for like, you're like, all right, this is the article we're going to create and this is going to be, you know, and you know, SEO is a bit like plant, content marketing is a, an SEO in the context of SEO is a bit like planting a garden in that, you know, it takes, it's not instant like ad spend. It's going to take sometimes, you know, several months to really see that traffic grow. Um, but how do you, like, do you have a good sense of when you're creating an article that it's going to be a hit? I wish I could say yes, <laughs> but in reality, the answer would pretty much be no. What I typically do, and, and typically what our process would be, is if we identify a search term that we think is high value for us, we'll first search that search term, and then we'll see what does Google at this point think is very relevant for that search term. And we'll look at basically all the pages on the front page of Google. And we'll say, okay, you know, based on what all these front pages, all these pages on the front page of Google look like, it looks like Google thinks that the person putting that word or a combination of words into the search box is looking for is blah. Like, what's the commonality between all of those pages? And then we'll say, how could we make a page that either combines all of those commonalities, or better, is just way better than everything else that's out there? for this search term. And then we put it out there and then it fails. <laughs> because we, I, I, I'm having a hard time thinking of any single time where we just hit it out of the park from the start. But, but it'll fail, it'll be on the third page or something like that, and then we'll start editing that page and we'll start making changes. Okay, maybe we messed up here, so let's, uh, let's change this up. Maybe we messed up there, so let's change that up. And then we wait. Because when you're talking about it taking, you know, weeks or months, um, at this point, I, I guess we're large enough now, or Google knows that we update often enough now, where we can usually see change, changes in days or weeks. So we okay. don't have to wait a couple of months to see if we're, we've been successful. We usually just wait a few days or even a few, you know, maybe at maximum two weeks to see if there's been any meaningful change. But we just keep editing, getting better, and changing, and trying to get better and better and better. And you know, sooner or later, we kind of hit the, you know, hit hit the core of what Google or what what Google thinks that their searcher is looking for, and then we see us starting to rise. 
One of the, the consistent themes here, two consistent themes I'm seeing with your business is from day one, it has been a process of constant iterative improvement. You give yourself permission to fail, and that's hugely important because it lets you, instead of working in these big, huge chunks to push things out, you're starting with like, okay, you know, whether it was your first product or it was, you know, these content marketing efforts, you're saying, you know, let's, let's build this thing and then fix it, and then fix it, and fix it, and fix it as many times as we have to. And it's okay that it doesn't work perfectly the first time. And then, you know, the driving vision within that um, is what's best for the customer, and really putting that customer first, and trying to say, like saying, you know, what what would benefit them content marketing-wise? What products do they need? Let's talk to them. Um, let's build a relationship with them. And I think, like, those are the the two things that are I see as, as being really, um, really valuable, uh, as to how you run your business. Yeah, it's really well-spoken. I mean, that's, that's really what we're looking for. So as far as the iterative approach, um, I mentioned it earlier, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in lean startup, which is if I could boil it down to one or two sentences, it would be <laughs> launch your MVP minimum viable product fast, and then collect data on how you can improve it and improve it as fast as possible. And then just continue to improve and we do that literally with our products, with barbells. We'll launch something out there, and then we'll improve, 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 improve with each production cycle. We do that with our content, with our pages. We do that with our service. And the second part that you had mentioned, I hammer this into everybody at Fringe. Because every company says, oh, yeah, customers are first, or we care about customer service. But it's bullshit. <laughs> if, you look at, if you look at what most companies do, most companies don't really care about their customers first. We it is lip service. It's absolutely lip service. It's not at Fringe Sport. We care about our customers. And if you want to be super mercenary about it, the reason that we, I mean, one financial reason that we care about our customers is because we're in fitness. It is a repeat customer business. So if we can knock it out of the park for our customers, they are going to come back. Now, if you move to the less mercenary, it's just the right thing to do for our customers. Like that's the company that I want to build and that's the company that I want to be a part of is one where we love our customers and we care about our customers and we always put them first in everything that we do. Well said. All right, last question. So we're, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You have, you've said it all. What would you say to yourself? You go back in time, you know, what's, what's one mistake you made that you would like to go back and, and tell yourself, hey, don't do this? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> but one that I would pick uh, right out of thin air is I would say learn email and content marketing. Learn and practice email and content marketing from the start. And anyone who's listening to this, I think that there – okay, so there's this saying, uh, best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Second best time is today. Same exact thing I would say about entrepreneurship. And if you're thinking about launching your own business, you know, same thing. Best time to do it would be 20 years ago. Second best time today. But I would say build your email list and work on content from the start. Content is the cheapest, best marketing that there is. And it has been that way for at least the last 100 years. So I know there are a ton of Facebook ad classes out there. And there are a lot of great ones. But if you learn content and you learn it cold, it's going to be valuable today. It's going to be valuable in 10 years. And it's going to be valuable in 50 years. 
Oh, well said. Yeah, regardless of what shiny object is out there in terms of, uh, you know, marketing and advertising, you will never regret building an email list. Um, and to do that, you're going to need great content either to send to that list or to publish to, to get people on that list. Um, yeah, it, say, I wish I could, I had gone back and, and started, started the show earlier, started content marketing earlier and started building the, uh, building the list earlier. Well, uh, yeah, this has been absolutely phenomenal. Peter, where could people go to learn more about you? So if you want to buy a barbell, <laughs> <laughs> go to fringesport.com and we're going to take care of you. If you want to reach me, honestly, hit me at my email, peter at fringesport.com, or you can hit me on Twitter, and I'm at Pete Keller. So there's no R on the Peter on Twitter, at Pete Keller. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Again, congratulations on your little one. Uh, really, you know, family is amazing and, and, and kids just, you know, make your heart go round, make your heart go flutter. Oh, yeah, even thinking about it. Well, th- <laughs> so thank you, Peter. And to our listeners, if you want, if you want to do me a big favor, leave us a review on iTunes. That's how we get other people to discover the show. Um, and if you'd like to be notified whenever a new episode goes live, sign up for my, news, my newsletter, critelster.com. And yes, I read every email. So if you send me something, I will reply. I promise. And I'll also send you an email whenever we post a new episode. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back next week. Our program was produced today by Paul Rita. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.